whatever expression of the body of Christ I happen to be in on a given Sunday as a highlight of my week. I love to gather together with God's people and worship Christ and fellowship and hear from the Word. And that's why we're here today. So if you've got your Bibles, whether you've got a hardcover copy or an electronic copy, you might want to open or scroll over to the book of 1 John. And we're going to continue in 1 John chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the 5th through the 10th verse this morning as we move through this little letter by John, Jesus' apostle. And so before we jump in further, I'm also going to pray. I want to pray specifically for the message. And so join with me. Let's go before the Lord and ask him to help us. Father, I just want to dovetail with Golub's prayer this morning. I thank you that he is one of the shepherd elders here, lifted up his heart to you, and I thank you that he prayed for me and that he prayed for the church. I too want to pray for this expression of Christ's church. I pray that you would use what's spoken to build the church up in faith, and I pray that you would give me grace to speak the things that you placed on my heart as I've been studying this text during the week. And Father, help us all grow toward maturity in Jesus. I also want to pray that if there are any in our midst who aren't Christians, that you would use something in the song, something in the message to draw them to yourself, and that they would be able to come to true faith in Christ. There may be some in our midst this morning that struggle with assurance of their salvation, and I pray that they would be able to gain assurance as we move through this letter of 1 John. And then finally, I want to pray for myself. I just ask that you would give me wisdom and guidance and help me. I stand here in weakness and in some ways trembling as I have the task of opening up your word. And so I pray that you would give strength. I pray, Father, that your spirit would be at work and that you would enable me to just impart to these brothers and sisters in the Lord what you have given to me from your word so that they might grow by it. Help me now to exalt Christ and be true to the text, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know if you take the time to survey the landscape of the church in the day and age in which we live, but... As a pastor, as a shepherd elder, I do, and as I survey the landscape of the church across this area of California, but also across the country and the world, because I happen to know pastors in various places across the country and across the world, um, it's safe to say that in some ways, um, the day and age in which we live is somewhat of a confusing time for Christians, and the way that that confusion sometimes manifests itself is that someone will approach me or one of uh, the elders of a church with what has been called an issue of conscience, and they're trying to figure out how to categorize a situation in their life. Now, I'm going to give you some examples of what I'm talking about. Um, I was asked to visit the daughter of a couple that were Christians for a long, long time, and this was a number of years ago. And they had a son that was really, really focused on Christ, but this particular daughter, even though she'd been raised in the church, wasn't focused on Christ at all. And as a matter of fact, 
Over the course of her life, she had become an alcoholic, and so she drank and drank and drank and drank and drank, and it was actually her drinking that put her in the hospital and ultimately took her out of this life. And so she died an alcoholic, and I went and visited her in the hospital, tried to share the faith with her. I have no idea how that turned out because she passed away before I could visit her again, but her lifestyle had her mom and dad caught in the horns of a dilemma. Because on the one hand, the scriptures say really clearly, no drunkard will inherit the kingdom of God. On the other hand, when she was a little girl, she'd prayed a prayer to receive Jesus into her life. Now her life didn't match her profession. And they were stuck with trying to figure out what happened. Did that prayer that she prayed as a young girl save her? Or did it not? And I have a clergy record where I write a little bit of something about anyone that I officiate a funeral for. And what I write in my clergy record in a case like that is the day will declare it. Because only Christ knows whether she repented and put her faith in Jesus before she died after I visited her and her brother visited her and we shared the gospel with her. And the, 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 the parents were a little bit confused. Um, I know of another instance where there was this lady, and this is more contemporary. She grew up in the church and had many, many, many activities supposedly for Christ. And she came to a place where she wasn't happy in her life she began to look at the scriptures and manipulate scriptures and came to the conclusion that it would be okay for her to leave her husband, and she did. Um, fast forward a little bit in her life, she uh, came to the conclusion that there was nowhere in the Bible that premarital sex or extramarital sex was wrong, and so she justified moving in that direction in her life. And uh, fast forward a little bit further, she came to the place where she felt like it was okay for her, even though she professed Christ, to marry somebody who was not in Christ. And her life has caused a huge dilemma in the lives of those that are in her family. And so she has a lifestyle that says one thing, and she has a profession that says something else. And so they're stuck on the horns of a dilemma trying to figure out what in the world is going on in her life. I know another person who decided that they were not happy in their marriage, and so to get out of their marriage, they committed adultery, hoping that their husband would divorce them. Uh, It was a similar situation to what David did with Bathsheba. If you know the story about Bathsheba, you know that David committed adultery with Bathsheba, David the king, and she got pregnant. He tried to cover it up by bringing her husband in, hoping that her husband would have marital relations with her. And then they could say that the baby was the husband's. Well, the husband just happened to be an honorable man, and he wouldn't go and have relations with his wife because his buddies were fighting a war. And so then David conspired to have that guy killed, and that's what happened. And then David felt like he could marry Bathsheba legally, and he did marry her, except Nathan the prophet came along and stuck his finger in David's chest and said, you blew it before the Lord. And so this person that I know thought that maybe that could happen and they would be able to get out of their marriage. Well, the husband was honorable and just basically forgave because he was a Christian. And so that 
resulted in a divorce, and now there's been a remarriage and stuff like that. That leaves people wondering, what in the world is going on? You have a profession here, seemingly walking in the Lord, and then you have a departure from that in very, very, very obvious ways, and then the person goes down a whole entire different path. How do we make sense of that kind of stuff? And then our day and age is even more confusing. I've been reading a new book by a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. Does anybody know who she is? Few people do. Uh, she's written four books, and the book that I've been reading is her, her fourth. Uh, she wrote a book, um, Secret Thoughts of, uh, what, an Unlikely Convert, which told the story of her conversion to Christ. Then she wrote a second book, Openness Unhindered, which talked about her testimony a little bit more and got into uh, some of the social factors that has brought us to the place that we're at in our day and age in terms of LGBTQ plus situation. Uh, she wrote a third book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, and it's about hospitality, and now she's come out with a fourth book, and her fourth book is titled Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. And she talks in that book about something that some of us may be familiar with. She talks in that book about the contradictory statement, gay and Christian. And she unpacks that because she was saved out of a lesbian lifestyle and has gone deeper and deeper and deeper in Christ. And she articulates how Gay and Christian are contradictions. And she goes deep into that. But we live in a day and an age where Christians are confused about those types of things. They don't really know what to do about it. In my area, at least, there are churches also that are called reconciling churches. Now, that's really interesting because any true gospel church is a reconciling church. And what I mean by that is this, we preach a gospel of reconciliation. Um, sin in people has caused us to be estranged from a holy God. And so we preach a gospel of reconciliation, that in Christ, God was at work reconciling the world to himself. And so if you are not a Christian, as all of us at one time weren't, you can be reconciled to a holy God through faith in Jesus Christ, because Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead so that sinners could be reconciled to a holy God. Now, that's what a reconciling church is in truth. Grace Bible Church is a reconciling church. We preach the gospel of reconciliation, do we not? And if you're a believer in Christ today, you've been reconciled to God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not what these churches in my area that call themselves reconciling churches are. So what is a reconciling church in their definition? A reconciling church is a church that attempts to reconcile itself to the LGBTQ community, and they've come to the conclusion that it doesn't matter who you marry as long as you're married before the Lord. And so if a man and a woman get married, that's cool. If a man and a man get married, that's cool. If a woman and a woman get married, that's cool, because the key thing is you're married and God ordained marriage. And we're a reconciling church. And so we basically give approval to men marrying men, women marrying women, 
men and women marrying, and we're all one happy family. That's a reconciling church. And then you have other churches that are called gay churches. And that simply means anybody and everybody can be gay on the one hand and practice homosexual sin on the other. But still, they gather together and call themselves churches, and they call themselves gay Christians. And all of the confusion around all of those types of scenarios runs rampant in the church across the country. And it may run rampant in churches here in Hollister. I don't know. I don't know the social landscape here well enough to be able to say, but it surely is a point of confusion in my area, just up the highway. And so what in the world should we do about those types of situations? Well, I just want to say that the confusion that arises around these types of scenarios is nothing new. And as a matter of fact, as I said when I opened the series on 1 John, I'll say again, something similar was happening in the midst of the churches that John was ministering to, and that was one of the reasons that he wrote this little letter of 1 John. Now, what had happened in John's arena is that there had been these false teachers arise in the midst of some of the churches that we would call the Johannine community, and they had begun to teach a gospel that was contrary to the gospel that John and the apostles preached. And because they were teaching a gospel that was contrary to the news about Jesus that John and the apostles preached, they also had an alternative view about sin. And so they preached another gospel. They had a different view of Jesus than John and the apostles had. And they had a different view of what constituted sin than what John and the apostles had. And there had been a group of believers from these churches who had followed these false teachers out. And so these churches that John had in mind were actually in an Ephesians chapter 20 verse 30 moment. Uh, if you read Ephesians chapter, or Acts, I mean, they were in an Acts chapter 20, verse 30 moment. If you read that verse, uh, that's found in a section of Scripture where the Apostle Paul was talking to the elders from the church in Ephesus, and in the 30th verse, he's recorded as saying to them that there will be people that rise up from within your own selves also that attempt to draw away disciples after them. And so... He had given the elders a warning that that was going to happen. That is what had happened in these Johannine churches. These people from within had arisen and had drawn away disciples after them, preaching a different gospel with a different view of sin and a different view of Jesus. And people that were still in the Johannine churches were confused. They were asking themselves, what if we believe the wrong gospel? What if we believe the wrong truth? What if the apostles that we heard and their view of sin in Christ really isn't accurate. That's the kind of confusion that arises even today. What if the reconciling churches are right? What if if you pray a prayer when you're a kid, it doesn't really matter what happens after that? What if the good news of the gospel that we've heard since the time we became a Christians is too narrow and so we actually need to adjust our view of what the Bible says in order to accommodate what these new teachers are teaching. As it is today, 
So it was in the first century. And so John, in 1 John, is addressing that. Now, he has in particular view bringing assurance to the people that were still in the Johannine churches who were struggling with confusion as a result of contradictory representations of the faith. Do you understand what I'm saying? So that's what 1 John is about. And so as I said before, I'll say again, 1 John gives nine evidences against which a person can compare themselves in order to find out whether they really are indeed true believers in Christ, true Christians, as the apostles preached as they received from Christ. And that was designed to bring assurance to the believers in the Johannine community, but it was also designed to help them differentiate and discern what Christ's truth was is over against the alternative truths that these other groups were preaching. Now, the first set of evidences we have in chapter 1 of 1 John, verses 1 through 4. And I would say it like this. The first four verses emphasizes the message about the true Christ so that the recipients of the letter know that what they've been taught, they've been taught because Jesus taught the apostles and the apostles taught them. And so they had heard the good news of Jesus articulated by eyewitnesses who knew for sure that Christ was the word of life and that the fellowship that they had was with the Father and with his Son. Then, though, John moves into talking about a second evidence which is designed to differentiate between true believers versus those who are not true believers, which is designed to differentiate between the fruits that come through the true gospel and the false alternative. And that's what we've got in John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. And so when you look at those verses, you've got John articulating what a Christian attitude towards sin looks like. So verse 1 through 4 articulates what a true attitude toward the true Christ should be focusing on. Verses 5 through 10 then articulates what a Christian attitude toward sin should look like. And what John does is that he shows us that a Christian attitude toward sin has a right foundation. And then he also shows that that right foundation bears the right kind of fruit, and then he compares that to a false alternative. So what I want to do with you now is read these verses, and then after that, we'll unpack it. And so focus now on 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. So after John gives his introduction, he makes a single statement And then he hangs some conclusions or some results off that statement. Now here's the statement. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. And then here comes the message. That God is light 
and in him is no darkness at all. Okay? This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And then he articulates five ifs that flow out of this foundational statement. Follow me now. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You see the pattern? Foundational statement. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. Followed by five ifs. If, 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 if. Three of them are negative. Two of them are positive. And these are articulating the Christian attitude towards sin. And we can draw the conclusion by saying this. If I examine my life against this statement in verse 5 and the five ifs, and I see that my attitude towards sin lines up with what John says is the proper attitude towards sin, then I can conclude that I'm a Christian. And if the three negatives are true of me, then I can conclude that I'm not a Christian. You follow me? So let's unpack this. The first thing that John does in terms of a Christian attitude towards sin is that he gives the right foundation for a Christian attitude towards sin. That's found in verse 5. I'm going to say it again. This is the message we have received and announced to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That's foundational to everything. Now, another way to put this is to say that a Christian attitude towards sin is the result of the person, the Christian, being in relation with God, and it follows out of who our God is, then, that the Christian would have a certain relationship or attitude towards sin. So who is our God? Well, verse 5 tells us two important truths about the God that we serve. Did you pick them up? If I gave you a test based on one verse, could you pass it? There are two statements that are very clear about God. Here's the first one. God is what? And then there's a negative statement. And in him there is no darkness at all. Very simple contrast. God is light. In him is no darkness. God is light. In him is no darkness. Now in John's writings... And as well, the Old Testament, the themes of light and darkness are used metaphorically of good and evil. They're also used metaphorically of, of light or life, rather, and of death. Uh, this is rooted in the Old Testament. So let me show you what I mean by that. If you keep your finger in 1 John and go all the way back to the Psalms, I'm going to call your attention to some verses that are in the 36th Psalm. And by a... In, in way of parentheses, 
Do any of you have the habit of reading through the Psalms regularly? You don't have to raise your hand, but let me just encourage you. If you're not in the habit of reading through the Psalms regularly, it's really easy to do. Do you know if you read five Psalms a day, you'll read through the whole book of Psalms in a month? You will. If you read one chapter of Proverbs a day, you'll read through the whole book of Proverbs in a month. If you read one Psalm a day, you'll read through Psalms twice in the, in the course of a year. Psalms is a great book to read through regularly and do devotions in. Why? Because it's the prayer book of the people of God. It's the praise book of the people of God. And it tells us all kinds of things about God. Now, one of the things is in Psalm 36. I want to show you something from Psalm 36, verse 9 and 10. Verse 9 particularly. Um, But I'm going to go back to verse 7. The psalmist wrote, how precious is your loving kindness, O God. So he's addressing himself to God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house. And you give them to drink of the river of your delights. Isn't that a neat promise? But then the psalmist writes this. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. So there's a connection here between light and life. And in John's writings, light and life are used interchangeably. In the same way that light and darkness are used interchangeably for good versus evil. Let me give you some examples of that. Go from Psalm 36 over to John's gospel and look in the first chapter of John. Here's the way John starts his gospel. He's talking about how in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the word made everything that has been made. If you look at verse 4, it says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. You see that connection? In him, the word was life, and the life is the light of men. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Is he talking about a light like a flashlight? I have a light on my iPhone. I can mash it, and it comes on. Is he talking about a light like that? No, he's not. The light that he's talking about is the light who we know as Jesus Christ. The word in chapter 1, verse 1, who brought all things into being, who has life, that's the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't comprehend or overcome it. So you've got the word, Christ, in the midst of the darkness, a dark world. If you go down further, John the Baptist comes bearing witness of the light, And verse 8 says, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which comes into the world and enlightens every man. And this light is talking about Jesus, right? In 1 John, it says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. When you get into John's gospel, the light is spoken of in terms of Christ. How can that be? Because God is light, Christ is light, Christ is the second person of the Trinity, he is very God of very God, 
In the same way that God the Father is light, so Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is light. And guess what? The Holy Spirit is light as well. He is the Spirit of light, the Spirit of life, the Spirit of holiness, the Spirit of truth. The triune God is light. Let me show you some other statements about Jesus, if you will. Um, I showed you John chapter 1, verse 4, and I also talked about verse 7 and verse 9. Uh, if you look over to John chapter 3, this play on words, light and darkness, comes into play again. And so in John chapter 3, verse 11 um, through 21, it comes into play. I'm not going to read from verse 11, but I do want to pick up from verse 14. Uh, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And he says to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will, in him uh, will have eternal life. And then 16 comes. And we all know John 3, 16, right? Could you record, re, uh, recite it for me? God so loved the world that, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Now look what follows in verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now look at verse 19 to 21. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Do you see that contrast? Evil deeds is considered darkness, Jesus is the light. Verse 20, everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Do you see the contrast that's made? Light versus darkness, life versus death, Good versus evil, all of that's tied up in these metaphors. Uh, from John chapter 3, jump over to John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, verse 12, we have an I am statement of the Lord Jesus. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So you've got the play on words again. Uh, if you look at chapter 9, verse 5, Jesus said of himself, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. How could he say that? If God is light, how can Jesus be saying that of himself? Because Jesus is very God of very God in the same way that he's very man of very man. He's the second person of the Trinity. Look over to John chapter 12. In John chapter 12... We have this statement in verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. And then if you jump down to verse 46, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Another way to put that is, Jesus came into the world as righteousness 
so that whoever believes in him will not remain in sinfulness, in unrighteousness. And so God is light. That's the testimony of Scripture. In other words, he is life and he is good. And then 1 John 1, 5 says, in him there is no darkness at all. And so that's a negative statement of the same thing. And by that statement, what John the Apostle is saying is that in the same way that God is light, uh, God also is not darkness. In other words, in him is no death. In him is no bad. In him is no evil. In him is no unrighteousness. So that's who God is. That's who God is. And what this means practically is, listen now, like father, like son. Like father, like daughter. When a girl or a guy, when a man or a woman comes into vital relationship with this God who is light and in whom is no darkness at all, and they begin to fellowship with this God who is light and in whom is no darkness at all, they begin slowly by the power of the Holy Spirit to take on more and more and more and more the characteristics of this God who is light and in whom is no darkness at all. That's called theologically sanctification, where the Holy Spirit makes us more and more like Jesus, and where more and more we want to reflect the qualities and the characteristics of this Father that we've come to know through Jesus Christ the Son. And so if we have a relationship with he who is light, who is righteous, we will adopt the same characteristics as he has. That's the foundation of this verse or this section of Scripture. Okay. So out of that then flows an application. After stating what God is like, John shows that the right kind of fruit results from knowing the God who is light and life. And that's in verses 6 through 10. So in these verses, John gives five if statements, as I said. Now, two of the statements are positives. Three of the statements are negatives. The two positive statements reveal a Christian attitude towards sin. Now, they're found in verse 7 and in verse 9. And so look at verse 7. John says, If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Then in verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How do we unpack those things? Well, if God is light and in him is no darkness at all, and I am walking in his light, I am walking with him, I'm keeping in step with the Spirit, I'm following God with faith in Christ as the Holy Spirit leads me, then I have fellowship with this God who is light, and that automatically means that I'm going to have koinonia, fellowship with other people who are walking in the light. Why? Because he or she who is walking in the light is compatible with another she or he that's walking in the light. What is the light? It's the life of God. What is the light? It's the righteousness of God. That also explains why when some people are walking in the light 
And then a person who says that they're a Christian begins to walk in darkness. And again, darkness is metaphorical for sin. The person that's walking in sin doesn't feel so comfortable around the people who are walking in the light. Have you ever had that happen to you? I've had that happen to me. I've had it happen to me where a friend is estranged, and as I tried to get to know why, I find out that they're walking in a pattern of active sin, and so when they're around me, I make them feel bad about themselves and guilty, and so they don't want to hang out with me too much anymore. And I've had the opposite happen. There have been times when I've been holding on to a pet sin, and I don't want to let it go, or I don't want to get rid of it, and the result of it is I don't have good fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Jesus. Why? Because they're walking in the light, and I've chosen for a period of time to walk in darkness uh, to follow after some sin that I've got in my life, and so I don't have fellowship with them. But the principle is if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we're going to have fellowship with one another. And in that state, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Then verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One of the marks that we have a Christian attitude towards sin is that we call sin what it is, sin. And we realize that it's not safe and healthy for us to be friends with it. And so we're not afraid to confess to other people we're sinful people. We're not afraid to confess to God what our sins are. He already knows them anyway. We don't put on any pretenses. We're not living a fake life. Confession becomes a part of our life. The Apostle Paul modeled this. And so if you read Romans chapter 7, for example, he talks about how in his flesh no good thing dwelt because to will was present with him, but how to perform that which was good he couldn't find. And then in the last two verses of that seventh chapter, he says, O wretched man that I am, Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And then he says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what was Paul bemoaning? Paul, fully converted, fully a Christian, was bemoaning the fact that he was nevertheless still prone to sin because the body was dead because of sin, and he wasn't in denial. He was being honest about it. And when a person has a Christian attitude towards sin, they're going to be honest about that as well. They're going to be honest about that as well. All right, so those are the positives. And by that, you can test yourself to see whether or not you're genuinely converted or not. Are you a person that always likes to put on airs? And even though you know you sin and you know you're sinful, you don't want anybody to know that. And when it comes to something like that, you're just going to do your best to cover up any imperfection you have. Okay, (laughs) that's contrary to being a true believer. You understand? All right, let's look at the negatives. There are three negatives, and they reveal false or faulty attitudes towards sin. So notice verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That makes sense, right? If God is light and in him is no darkness at all, it doesn't matter if we say we have fellowship with him. If we're walking in darkness, that is, we're walking in sin, we're lying and not practicing the truth. We're living opposite to who God is. It's a life pattern now. Now, verse 8 is another negative if. 
If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then in verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Those are the negative ifs. So test yourself against those negative ifs. Are you a person that says you have fellowship with him, but you're walking in darkness? Some of the examples I gave earlier would testify to the fact that there were people who testified that they had fellowship with God, but their whole life pattern was walking in darkness. What would be the indictment from this verse on them? Now, I don't know what happened to the young lady that I was talking about who died. She may have repented at the last minute, but this verse says, That if your life pattern is to walk in darkness, it doesn't matter that you say you have fellowship with God because you're lying and not practicing the truth. What about the next one? Some people say they don't have any sin. I had a friend one time, and we didn't stay friends for long because I was too honest with him, and he decided that I didn't have the truth, but he told me one time that after he came to know the Lord, um, he went days and days and sometimes weeks without ever sinning at all. And he believed that. And so I bring him back here. Um, If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in you. Uh, You're telling me that you know the gospel, but you go days and days and weeks and weeks and maybe months and months with no sin. What does that say? And he, uh, well, I don't want to go into the detail of that, but he and I, kind of stopped walking together and I called him out on some other things too and it was a tragedy and I I miss him so much but the verse says what it says Um, are you a person who if someone asks you do you know that you're sinful and separated from God you would say wait a minute I'm not sinful I'm not separated from God then you would fall into that category I asked one of my cousins one time before going to a Billy Graham crusade with him um, whether he knew that he had a sin problem. And his response to me, and I'll never forget it, was, no, I don't have a sin problem. I never do that kind of stuff. Now, he believed that. He wasn't a Christian. He went to Billy Graham, and he found out that he was sinful, and he put his faith in Christ uh, one of those nights. But that statement, a negative statement, is pretty self-explanatory. Look at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Uh, There were people that had led believers astray that were saying these types of things, and that's what John is trying to correct. And so that's foundationally what the text is about. What do we have when we put all of this together? Well, when we put all this together, we can conclude a couple of things. Now listen. If we walk in the light and are confessing our sins, several things are true about us. One, we have a Christian attitude towards sin. Two, we have fellowship with other Christians. Three, it's evidence that we've been cleansed from all sin. Now that first statement about being cleansed from all sin has a certain focus. It means that we've been cleansed from all of our sins That happened at salvation when we confessed our sinfulness to God and we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's the second thing that's true of us. We have fellowship with other Christians. We've been cleansed from all sin. Why? Because Jesus died for us, rose again from the dead. And when we put our faith in Christ, 
God counts his merits to our account, and he took our sinfulness and had placed it already on Christ on the cross, right? That's what substitutionary atonement is about. Jesus died in your place so that when you put your faith in Jesus, there's an exchange. His righteousness for your sinfulness that Jesus already paid for, all right? Cleansed from all sin. Another thing that's true about a person that has the Christian attitude towards sin is that they're forgiven. Um, Our debt is wiped out. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. Um, Then we're cleansed of all unrighteousness. What is that about? Um, There are two statements of cleansing here. What does the statement about being cleansed from all unrighteousness mean? In verse 9 of chapter 1, I'll tell you um, what it's talking about. Um, When you, as a Christian, sin, do you take that sin and confess to God that you sin? Do you? Nobody's responding. Okay, now why do you do that? If Jesus paid the penalty for all of your sins, why do you need to confess the sins that you committed this morning when you were getting ready for church against your spouse or against your kid to God? Why do you need to confess that? Not to maintain your salvation, but to maintain your fellowship with God the Father. And also to maintain your fellowship with the person in your family that you might have sinned against this morning when you're getting ready for church. I sinned against my wife this morning as we were driving. I got cut off, made me uptight. She said something to me about going in this lane, and I snapped at her, and I had to confess to her right then. My attitude was wrong. I sinned against you. Shouldn't have raised my voice. Shouldn't have got upset about that dude that cut me off either, right? But I didn't need to confess it to keep myself in salvation. I need to confess things to her so that she and I have good fellowship And I confessed it to God uh, because it was wrong before him and I didn't want to affect my relationship of fellowship with God. Are you following what I'm saying? Now let me ask you a question. Been there, done that. That's right. (laughs) Here's another question though. What happens to sins that we commit after we're believers that we can't remember and therefore we don't confess? That comes under the all unrighteousness part. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, but it doesn't stop there. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're cleansed from the sins we commit after becoming a Christian, and fellowship is restored, as well as of all of the unrighteousness that we do, that we don't remember to talk about or confess to God. That's what it's talking about. So that's what happens if we walk in the light and we're confessing our sins. We know he who is light and in whom is no darkness at all. But these ifs also define the false attitude. What is the false alternative? Well, if we walk in darkness, if we say we have no sin, if we have not sinned, if we manipulate the scriptures to justify our sin, if we find loopholes so that we can walk the sinful path even though we say we might be Christians, if we're doing any of that, we're walking in darkness 
And in a sense, we're saying we're not sinning in the areas where we are sinning. And if we say we've not sinned, then here's the truth about us. Number one, we lie. Number two, we don't practice the truth. Why? Because when we practice the truth, we're going to bring ourselves into conformity with the will of God as revealed in Scripture, and we're going to be confessing our sins and owning it. Um, we lie, we don't practice the truth. Uh, here's a second reality, or third reality. Uh, it says we deceive ourselves. Fourthly, it says we make him a liar. How in the world do we make him a liar? That's a very, very interesting question, right? How do we make him a liar? Verse 10. Because he says we have. Who said that? That's right. He says we have sinned. He says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He says there's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who seeks good, not even one. All of us break God's law. If you read the Ten Commandments, we've broken all ten. All of us do. We do even after we become Christians. We don't want to because our attitude has changed. But we still struggle in that particular area. And so, when we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar because he says we have sinned and we say we haven't. And then that's evidence that we are devoid of his word in our lives. His word is not in us. And so listen, another way to simplify this is to say this. That if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we can be professors and our life shows that we are possessors. Because in the same way that a newborn baby manifests life in the womb from the time of conception and then continues to grow, so a person who has come into relationship with God who is light and in whom is no darkness manifests life as well. Right? But if the three negative ifs are true of a person, if they're true of us, that simply says we're professors but not possessors. Our profession doesn't match our life. And our life is always the evidence of whether we possess Christ or whether we don't. Does that make sense? In this, the Christian and the non-Christian are contrasted. Therefore, a clear mark of someone who is a Christian is that they have a right attitude toward the good news about Jesus, verse 1 through 4, and they have a Christian attitude toward sin, verses 5 through 10. All of us have to ask ourselves, what is our attitude toward sin? How do we line up when we compare our lives to verses 5 through 10? I remember in a conversation with a friend of mine years ago, he and I had gone into a grocery store to buy food, and I went one way to get the stuff I needed. He went another way to get the stuff he needed. I got my stuff faster than he did. I went looking for him, and I found him standing in the aisle staring at a grocery shelf, and I walked up to him and said, hey, what are you doing? And he said, well, I was going to get this product because I need it, but I'm actually thinking about sin. And I thought, wait a minute, we came shopping for groceries, and you're standing here thinking about sin. Now, he turned and said, yeah, I've been thinking about sin. I said, well, tell me, what are you thinking? And I don't remember the whole conversation, but the thing that he talked to me about and that he and I discussed then was this. He said, you know, before I was a Christian, I never thought about sin at all. I didn't think too much about what I was doing and whether it was right or wrong. If I had an impulse, I followed it. If I had a desire, I fulfilled it. And then I became a Christian. And the change in my heart 
is that now I'm concerned about whether my attitude, my motive, my action, my desires are sinful and displeasing to the Lord or whether those things are pleasing to the Lord. And that's what I was thinking about. And then he and I discussed it. If you, another person or a church, see sin like those spoken of by the negative ifs, we have reason to believe they're not Christian. If you, another person or a church, see sin like those spoken of in the positive ifs, this is the mark of true Christian faith. Why? God is light, in him is no darkness at all. God is righteous, in him is no sinfulness at all. The scripture defines what's sinful. And those who have a Christian attitude towards sin call sin, sin, call righteousness, righteous, according to God's word, and they live their lives accordingly. So let's all examine ourselves. Um, My heart's desire and prayer for every Christian I know is that we'll all be presented blameless before the Lord Jesus when he comes. And so it behooves us to be examining ourselves and to make sure that we're in the faith. May we do so. Heavenly Father, thank you that we could be together this morning and go through these five verses and know that there's some interesting statements made and there's some hard truth in here. And even though I was not able to unpack it in all the detail that we could have, I think all of us are aware of what a confusing time we live in. But your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And when we follow your word, And we allow it to define categories. And we recognize who you are. The God who is light and whom is no darkness at all. Then confusion is dispelled. And we're able to walk straight. I want to pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ here. That you would just take the message that's been spoken. And give them grace to go back and think through it again. Read through these texts. Meditate on them. Pray to you. I pray that every true Christian would come away with full assurance of faith. And I pray for those that are doubting that they would be able to determine if they are born again or not. And if they're not, be born again. I pray for those who have never been born again that they might be born again and saved. And so please do your work now. Give us grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So you're dismissed. That's always a difficult segue. For me, I'll tell you why. So what happens that where, I'm, where I've been preaching for 35 years is uh, we bring the sermon to a close and close out, and then we have communion. We have communion every Sunday, and then there's a song, <laughs> and then I do the benediction. And so to finish the message, have a closing prayer, and then do the benediction, it just I'm not quite used to it yet, but it's all right. That's the way you guys do it here, and I love it. So listen, have a good day in the Lord, and I hope to see you next Sunday. Not before. God bless.